My name is Lola and I'll be reading in Yoruba today. I was raised in Lagos, Nigeria. Growing up, my mother spoke Yoruba to us and we would usually respond in English, Yoruba, a bit of both. So today I will be reading from John 15 verses 26 to 27. Please rise for the reading of the word. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. In Yoruba. Shubon, nikbati olutuna obade, eniti emi oransi yi, lati odo babawa, ani, emi otitoni, tinti odo babawa, ono ni yo jerimi, Ain belu yo si jerimi. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. I have a distinct memory of my phone buzzing this one Saturday afternoon. It was a familiar name, but not one I'd seen in quite a while. And uh, an old friend from Bible college. And we had studied to become pastors together, but I hadn't actually spoken to him in years. So I picked up, and he was calling me from a hotel bed where he had just paid a prostitute, and she had left the room. And then he opened up to me about a pornography addiction that he had battled for decades. It had come and gone in waves, and so had his resolve to fight it. He had been through accountability partners and filtering software and different seasons of prayer. Occasionally he'd have a good run, but it never quite lasted. And with the next failure, that familiar ocean of shame would wash over him again. Over time, he determined that booze seemed to help more reliably than God did, and so he would numb out a lot, not every night. And He never would have described himself as an alcoholic, but the bottle did become the place that he went to for rest and escape. And that pattern with lust had just intensified and intensified until this one night on a business trip, he paid for sex from a stranger for the first and only time. And when the haze of whiskey had worn off, he was stuck with who he was, and how lost he'd become. And so he was calling me from the foot of a hotel bed. And right around that same time, I happened to be starting a church in Brooklyn. There was this one Sunday that I will never forget when the service ended and someone walked up to the front and said to me, wow, Tyler, I don't know how long you've been curating that content, but that was one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And I was like, was it? Tell me more, which part specifically? And uh, especially in those early days when I was pastoring in my 20s, the insecurity of starting something and sharing that vision with the whole community, I wore that around all the time. And so I remember leaving that Sunday gliding as I walked out of the church doors. And I'll never forget rounding the corner and right there on the sidewalk, God stopping me in my tracks with a whisper, Tyler, no one was impressed with the content Peter curated for the day of Pentecost. No one noticed Peter at all. They were too busy responding to me. Tyler, great content, but there was no power. You see, the thing that will drive you to the power of the Holy Spirit is a confrontation with your own powerlessness. 
And that presents itself in many different forms. It can come through a battle with what the Bible calls sin, a pattern in yourself that you fundamentally disagree with but lack the willpower to overcome on your own, or just the futility of the very best you've got to produce any lasting change on your own strength. And I've got personal experience with both. I mean, Jesus must have had more in mind than just a lifelong struggle that I can't overcome, right? But if God is so strong, then why does this pattern in my life seem so much stronger? And Jesus must have had more in mind than how long have you been curating that content, right? But if the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power, then why does so much of the time, to be honest, it seem like we're all talk? I finally got desperate enough, and that's where I got acquainted with the familiar stranger that we call the Holy Spirit. Everything that I have and will continue to share with you in this teaching series is born out of my weakness, my desperation, and God's extraordinary kindness. So I'm burdened for you because some of you are desperate. And I'm excited for you because many of you are hungry. And I'm full of hope because God is generous, not stingy. He is not reluctant to give his spirit and he's attracted to humility. So let's keep going because there's so much more. So we're in this practice demonstrating the gospel where we've been working our way through an introduction to the person of the Holy Spirit. Wind, breath, and today we'll come to dove. Now dove is a biblical metaphor that is all about the Spirit's power. As a fair warning, we're gonna get into some of the deep weeds today. So here's the four movements that should be familiar to you by now. The Spirit with the Father, the Spirit in the Son, the Spirit fills us, and the Spirit through us. We're going to start in the most obvious place, Luke chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. That's where I'm going to begin reading. Luke 3, verse 21. When all of the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now the most provocative claim in that very loaded passage is the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Why the bird reference? I mean, is this an attempt to spice up holy literature with a well-placed simile? Probably not. Luke, the author, he's a doctor, not a poet, and prescriptions usually aren't written to captivate the pharmacist. <laughs> and besides, all four Gospels use the exact same phrase, like a dove, for what happened at Jesus' baptism. Now, what are the odds that all four Gospel authors would independently choose the same poetic imagery? Now, to understand the magnitude of what is being claimed in these three words, we've got to hear it like the ancient Jewish readers did. And that takes us back to the beginning. So now flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start where we've been starting, and that's with the first words of the Bible, the Spirit with the Father. Here are the opening words of the biblical narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Roughly 400 years or so before Jesus' life, Israel was living in exile, meaning they had been removed from their homes by force, traveled 700 miles on foot to live in Babylon, the world's superpower of the day, where they were enslaved. Now, that period of foreign slavery lasted 70 years, so Jewish children were born in Babylon, and they grew up speaking Aramaic, not Hebrew. 
Their native language was the language of the empire, not the language of their ancestry. Now the rabbis, in an attempt to preserve their own culture and religious convictions for these generations in a foreign land, translated the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic so this generation could read it. They called the Aramaic translation of the Torah the Targum. Jesus and his contemporaries spoke Aramaic. They were near enough to exile. Jesus grew up most likely reading from the Targum, not the Hebrew translation of the Torah. And the reason that matters is because if you read the Targum, a phrase is added to Genesis chapter one. Here's the Targum's translation of the Bible's opening words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters like a dove. Next movement, the spirit in the sun. Bring that with you now back to Jesus' baptism where we began. Do you see it now? Do you see what Luke's doing? Luke is connecting the dots, which are obvious to every Jewish reader. The same spirit hovering over creation has now come to rest permanently on this man, Jesus, at his baptism. God created the world when his spirit spread its wings over the chaos like a dove, and God recreated the world when his spirit spread its wings over the waters of baptism of Jesus like a dove. Now turn to the very next chapter, Luke chapter four. I'm gonna read from verse 18. For context, Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He then took the liturgy of, or I'm sorry, the liberty of choosing his own teaching text. He grabbed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, found the right place, and publicly read this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now let's stop there. The phrase anointed one is where we get the term Messiah. Jesus has just made a claim to be the Messiah the one permanently anointed by the Spirit of God. Now that was shocking at the time, but that's old news to most of us. That rumor's pretty well in circulation these days. But what is surprising is the life that backed up that claim, the miraculous life that Jesus presents behind the claim of his identity. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on him like a dove in Luke 3. And in the verses that follow, Luke just won't let up on the Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Follow with me. This is Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for for 40 days he was tempted. Then after his account of the temptation, Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Then Jesus grabbed the scroll of Isaiah, found the right place, and publicly read, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Could it be any more clear? Luke is beating the same drum again and again and again to say the power displayed through Jesus came when the Spirit rested on Jesus. By reading Isaiah 61, Jesus is saying that power, his power, comes from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the Gospel author Luke is unmistakably claiming that this illegitimate peasant from a rural village called Nazareth was recognized at the age of 30 as Messiah, the Messiah promised by Isaiah, and the inciting incident that started all of that was when the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now we need to spend a little bit of time here because these are the deep weeds that I was referring to. So let's ask this question. How did Jesus do what he did? 
How did a human being walk around the earth working miracle after miracle after miracle? Where did his power come from? There are two main ways that people understand the miracle stories of the Bible. The first is of proof that Jesus was God. And that's probably the belief that most of us carry. It's been the common way of understanding Jesus for the past 300 years or so. But where, what are the origins of that idea? Where did that idea come from? Let me give you the backstory. Uh, in the 18th century, before the Enlightenment, the average person had a much more spiritual worldview than they commonly do today. For instance, people would say something like, oh, the sun comes up, oh, God's made another day. But post-enlightenment, there's this explosion of scientific discovery, and then it's, well, actually, the sun rises because the earth is spinning at approximately 1,000 miles per hour and is revolving around the sun or the star at approximately 67,000 miles per hour. You are nothing but a speck on a ball of matter that happens to be rotating around this one star in a massive expanse we call the universe. That's why the sun rises again this morning. So a much more secular worldview was born. What do I need to do, guys? <laughs> Should I get the other mic? I'm going to get the other mic because yep. no one's talking about to do. <laughs> All right. All right, so... A much more secular worldview was born, and with that actually came the terminology of natural and supernatural. Natural meaning governed by the laws of science, supernatural meaning transcending the laws of science. You will not find those terms in pre-Enlightenment dictionaries. They came out of the Enlightenment as a way to explain new discoveries that people were making in the scientific world. And so in that age of an emerging secular worldview, you started to hear things like, oh, I don't believe in the supernatural. And with that, belief in the biblical God got thrown out because people began to say, look, even if there is a God, and I don't really believe that there is, but even if there is a God, he's probably not involved in human life. Even if God created the world, that God has moved on to other projects and left this thing just to run by natural scientific laws. Deism, or the divine watchmaker theory, emerged as a popular middle ground between Christianity and atheism in those days. Around that same time, the famous D.S. Thomas Jefferson cut out the miracle stories from the Bible, keeping the principles of morality, but stripping the story of all of its personality and power. So Christians are freaking out, as, let's be honest, they tend to do, right? <laughs> They're saying, wait, 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 but, but you can't just throw out the miracle stories because the miracle stories are proof that Jesus was God. And so in the late 18th century, this idea became quite popular. Jesus was able to do what he did because he was the son of God. And there's some truth to that. I don't want to throw that out altogether, but there's a number of problems with that idea too. The most obvious problem is this one. All sorts of people work miracles in the Bible, not just Jesus. I mean, Moses worked 10 plagues, he parted a sea, and then he drank filtered spring water from a rock. But he never claimed to be the Messiah. Or Elijah healed the sick, fed the multitudes, and then raised a child from the dead. But he never claimed to be the Messiah. The list could keep going. It even goes on after Jesus. All sorts of people are doing all sorts of supernatural acts in the early church. We'll get there in a minute. And none of them claimed to be the Messiah. You see, the belief that Jesus did miracles as proof of his identity is not 
the historic view of the Christian church, and it's certainly not the view of the earliest Christian communities. It is a reactionary position that was born out as a defense against deism, and it's only even been around in church history for the last 300 years or so. The claim of Luke and the other gospel writers is this. The miracles of Jesus were signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like good news for the poor, freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, healing for the sick, and salvation for the lost. The long-awaited kingdom of God is here, and it's being ushered in by the king, the anointed one, Jesus. So back to our original question, how on earth did Jesus do what he did? The historic belief of the church and the clear biblical teaching, in my opinion, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That before his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, Jesus lived for 30 years, and he did not utter a word of teaching, work a miracle, or call a single disciple. After his baptism, Jesus is constantly teaching, working miracles, and calling disciples. His baptism is the incident that incited all of it. In fact, the Gnostic Gospels, meaning the biographies of Jesus that were thrown out as fiction by the reliable councils, usually contain stories of boyhood Jesus uh, using his miraculous powers for the sake of his own entertainment. And the early church fathers, who were near enough to his life to have eyewitness accounts passed down, said, no, 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 that, that's not how it happened. It all started when, the anointing, when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit like a dove after his baptism. And even Peter himself remembered it this way. This is Acts chapter 10. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing. So here's why I've gone on and on about this part, is because what started with Jesus does not stop with Jesus. His life is not a case of evidence to convince you of his claims. His life is an invitation. This is what it looks like when a human being is anointed with the Spirit of God. Jesus was the truest home the Holy Spirit ever inhabited. Why? Because Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit to be completely himself. You know the difference between going over to like an acquaintance's house for dinner versus going home to your your own place and making yourself dinner? Like in your own home, you feel the freedom to be completely yourself, to speak without wondering about your perception and to laugh and joke with your guard down and to lounge on the couch and put your feet up and to pour your heart out and become emotional and be comforted and to raid the fridge or get seconds without having to ask permission. That's the life of Jesus for the Holy Spirit, a home, a living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle, remember? Well, in English, it's home. In Hebrew, the word is nava or nava. It's a verb that means to bring home and make beautiful. Bring home, make beautiful. What a description. After the Spirit blew like wind to part the Red Sea so that Israel could be freed from their oppressor, Moses broke into a spontaneous song in Exodus 15. It goes like this. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. In Hebrew, it's I will navah him. Literally, Moses sings, I will prepare him a home. Jesus navahed the Holy Spirit. He brought the Spirit home. He made his life not just a house, but a home, a place where the Spirit could freely and fully express himself. And in return, the Spirit made Jesus beautiful. 
The life that he lived, regardless of belief, is universally admired for its breathtaking beauty. Bring home, make beautiful, Navarre. Romans chapter 8 says the same power that was in Jesus is now coursing through the veins of every last one of his followers. The same spirit that anointed Jesus has anointed you and me. Jesus navad the spirit, and then he gave you and I uh, his life that we might do the same. That we might become a home in which the spirit can express himself fully and freely without having to ask permission. Make us beautiful. The spirit fills us. Now, Luke went on to write a sequel. Does anyone know what it's called? Acts, exactly. Let's turn there next. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is how Luke opens the sequel. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the implication there, of course, is that this book, the sequel, is all about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Only this book is not about the life of Jesus. It's about the lives of his followers continuing all that he started. And then in Acts 2, the next chapter, the Spirit descends like a dove and rests on each of them. Acts 2 verse 3 says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Said another way, they were anointed at Pentecost by the very Spirit that anointed Jesus at his baptism. Eugene Peterson says, God gave us the miracle of congregation the same way he gave us the miracle of Jesus, by the descent of the dove. The Holy Spirit descended into the womb of Mary in a Galilean village of Nazareth. Thirty or so years later, the same Holy Spirit descended into the collective spiritual womb of men and women, which included Mary, who had been followers of Jesus. The first conception gave us Jesus. The second conception gave us the church. And the rest of the book of Acts is essentially ordinary people doing the stuff Jesus did. Acts covers the first 30 years of church history, and it looks a whole lot like the three-year ministry of Jesus. Peter and John lead a prayer meeting that rattles the temple's foundations. Philip teleports to an evangelistic encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. Paul casts a demon out of an exploited, trafficked girl. They speak words of knowledge that they could not have known apart from the revelation of God. They break down racial and socioeconomic barriers that had stood for centuries, and they serve food daily to the neediest in society. To summarize, it's good news for the poor. Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, healing for the sick, and salvation for the lost. The supernatural ministry of Jesus was so common in the early church that Luke actually got tired of writing down the specifics and began to use summary statements. Acts chapter 2, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Acts 4, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the, Lord's Je of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Acts 5, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. The theologian Michael Green says, the great characteristic of the New Testament church is that it consisted of men and women who had received a living experience of the Spirit in their own lives. That is what turned the first disciples from a company of disappointed folks whose leader had died, risen, and left them into a church, reception of the Spirit. In fact, the very priests who opposed Jesus and colluded in his death then reacted this way to Jesus' followers after Pentecost, Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So the temple priests saw the church and thought, whatever was in Jesus, it's gotten in them too. 
ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff of Jesus. And because they're ordinary and perfect people, there have been and will be abuses and misuses of the indwelling power of God. And you might be the innocent victim of one of those abuses. And if that is your story, I'm so, so sorry. It's the furthest thing from God's intention in giving us his spirit. The biblical word for power is dynamis, from which we get the English dynamite. Now, dynamite can be used for good or bad. It can be used for building up or for tearing down. And so to entrust power to ordinary people, it's a risk. God takes empowerment risks on us, entrusting his name to a bunch of fumbling messes with egos and mixed motives. And sometimes we have experiences with the Spirit of God where we wish that he would have just played it safe and kept his spirit all to himself. But he risks power on us out of love for us. Parker Palmer says, here's one of the great acts of love, empowering another person, knowing full well that person will probably make serious mistakes with that power, knowing that those mistakes may be costly even to the one who does the empowering. Now, if you were to turn to the last page of Acts, you would see that this book has no ending. It's like an indie film where the, the credits just roll at some point, and then you pretend to love it with your friends at dinner afterwards. It, it's right in the middle of the story. All the action's happening, and it just trails off. There's no end because the story is still being written. It's because the acts recorded in the church's first few decades kept going after Luke stopped writing them down. We are living in the era of Acts right now. So here's our final movement, the Spirit through us, and it brings us back to the text that Lola read for us as we began. John 15, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. You also must testify. I'm sending you my spirit so that each of you can continue the work that you've seen me doing. A couple of minutes before this, Jesus had said, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So who's going to do even greater things than Jesus? Is it the extra spiritual super anointed apostles? No. The Christian pastors who get paid to do it? The monks who have forsaken the world to, to go after that and only that. No, it's whoever. Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. That's you and me. And as we covered in week one, whatever he meant by greater, he definitely didn't mean lesser. He didn't mean you are now free to struggle forever and get tossed around like a rag doll by that one habitual sin pattern. But don't worry, I'm giving you my spirit so that occasionally when you're reading the Bible, something will stick out to you. He meant something more than that. N.T. Wright says, modern Christians use the word witness to mean tell someone about your faith. The way Luke seems to be using it is tell someone else that Jesus is the world's true Lord. The story of what happened next is written in such a way as to say, this is how the kingdom is to come. This is how Jesus is starting to rule the world. This is what it will look like when God becomes king on earth as it is in heaven. And what does it look like when God becomes king? It looks like this. Good news for the poor, freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, healing for the sick, and salvation for the lost. To witness is to proclaim and embody all of that. It's a community where Jesus is king, previewing the kingdom to come, the only kingdom whose reign will never end. In summary, 1 John 2, verse 20, but you, you, 
and you and you and you have an anointing from the Holy One. You've been anointed with the Spirit of Jesus to continue the very ministry of Jesus. Does the life of Jesus match your experience? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if we have what the first Christians had, why do we not do what they did? We must conclude that either God gave them more than he gave us, or we have, a failed, we have failed to avail ourselves of what he has given us. Does the life of Jesus match your experience? If not, what gets in the way? What resists the experience of the Spirit's anointing? I want to name eight symptoms. I'm going to move through them quickly. Not all of them will be for you, but I believe that the Spirit will highlight one or two of these things as invitations to each of us today. So first, we become students, not practitioners. The early church was a bunch of illiterate peasants filled with the power of God. They did not have theology degrees or commentaries to consult. They did not know their Enneagram numbers or their Myers-Briggs personality types. They had no clear strategies for church growth and didn't even own a completed copy of the New Testament. But they were desperate for the power of God. Desperate enough to risk, and so they became practitioners. And what they did, we study. The early church was not a matter of talk but of power. The modern church is all talk, no power. A.W. Tozer says, we have substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter. And likewise, Samuel Chadwick writes, a ministry that is college-trained but not spirit-filled works no miracles. In The Second Mountain, David Brooks talks about the fact that he grew up loving movies. And then as a sophomore in college, he would go to this one old theater to watch a classic film every night of the week. He was that in. Then he got a degree in journalism and got his first job as a movie critic. So, so he would sit in a screening room with a notebook in his hand, thinking he had his dream job, but something happened to him. He stopped watching movies and started analyzing them. And, and that notebook, it became like a wall between him and the story. By evaluating film in his own words, he says, I lost the ability to have an authentic experience. We don't get jaded into spectating because we want to. It, we do it in response to a real, um, some real experience, a painful and disillusioning experience, typically. But then in search of a more pure and authentic experience, we often wall ourselves off from experience altogether. In an effort to become naive, we accidentally become less human. We become critics who lose the ability to have an authentic experience. So beware of mistaking sophistication, which is a good thing, for cynicism, bitterness, lack of compassion, or minimizing the whole self to nothing more than a brain on a stick, which are all detrimental things. If we get to the end of this teaching series and have successfully laid a more solid theological foundation for the work of the Holy Spirit, I'll be underwhelmed and a touch disappointed. Because we've got plenty of talk. What we need is power. What we need is encounter. We do not just need better sermons on the Holy Spirit. We need a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Second symptom, a lack of expectation. Sometimes I wonder what Jesus would say if he just followed us around for a while. 
Like if he sat in this room on a Sunday and shadowed us at work and went out with us on a Friday night. And sometimes I think that if Jesus did all of that, he would weep. He would weep at our lack of expectation. The way we come to church hoping for, at best, an above-average sermon that doesn't go on too long. <laughs> when the living God is longing with every fiber of his holy being to encounter you. The way we have no expectation that our friends would ever encounter Jesus and we turn the power of the Spirit into just passive defense against the big bad city. I don't think Jesus is angry or disappointed. I think he's weeping because there's so much more that he has for us. Third, disqualified by shame. Maybe more than any word God or Jesus ever spoke, the one I think we don't buy is whoever. Whoever believes in me will do the work I've been doing. Love the sentiment, man, but I'm still working on me a little bit. No, whoever. Yeah, but you don't know me. Whoever. See, we count ourselves out of a story that's built on moral disasters. Jesus taught that when you glimpse how good his kingdom is, your heart will be moved so profoundly you'll trade everything you've got to take hold of it. Then his heart was moved so profoundly by you that he gave up everything to take hold of you, even shedding his own blood. If you matter that much to God, there's nothing he's got that he's trying to hold back from you. Romans chapter 8 says bluntly, He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, will he not freely give us all things? Jesus is not afraid of empowering the disqualified. He's afraid of putting authority in the hands of those who have bought the illusion that they're qualified. Just imagine if Peter was leading the early church without first being broken, really broken by his own failure. Without a broken Peter, you do not get Pentecost. And so my prayer is consistently, Jesus, break me. Break me like you broke Peter. Break my life open that it might become bread for the world around me to feast on. Because you don't get the book of Acts without utter brokenness. Your brokenness is your qualification. Fourth, unrepentant sin. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is conviction. And that's never for the sake of shame. It is always for the sake of more. Because sin is in the way. It's in the way of presence and power and love and joy and hope and life. And some among us are likely living in unrepentant sin. And it could be a sin of omission, meaning something you're not doing that you know you're meant to do. Or it could be a sin of commission, something you're doing that you know you're not meant to do. And I'm not bringing this up to try to place conviction on you. I would never do that. It's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. I'm just trying to make a little bit of space for God to put his finger on something in your life and say that right there. It's in the way. Psalm 51, right in the middle of David's heart-wrenching prayer of confession, he cries out to God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And he won't. He never, ever will. The only reason God points out sin is to get it out of the way. Fifth, a low stamina for disappointment. John Wimber, who led a modern-day revival in California in the 80s, says that this is how it started. We prayed for people to be healed and then watched them die. We probably did that at least a thousand times. And then finally, we got one. Someone was miraculously healed. And we told that story through a thousand more failed prayers until finally something broke and a wave of healing rolled in one after another after another. See, opening ourselves up to the Spirit's power, it involves disappointment. Even in the early church's glorious beginning, they had less than a 100% success rate. 
People died while the church prayed for healing, and people were oppressed while the church prayed for freedom, and people went without food. Some of them even starved while the church tried radical generosity. Peter got thrown into a jail cell. The church gathered for an all-night prayer meeting. The jail cell flew open. Peter walked out, and he showed up at that prayer meeting. The night before, James had been thrown into jail. Certainly, the church must have gathered for an all-night prayer meeting. James never got let out, and he was executed the following morning, and I don't know why. And neither did they. Here's what I know for sure. The power of the Holy Spirit involves risk, wonder, and disappointment. And it means a faith that is resilient enough to keep asking, even when all we're getting is silence that we don't understand. And it means that we resist the human urge to let our disappointment define our current faith. Do you know how rich the family of God is that we've been woven into by the Spirit? I once sat in a sterile corporate retreat center, half present in a mostly boring gathering for Christian pastors on a weekend retreat. And then Phaedra, a middle-aged African-American woman from Chicago, stood up and sang a cappella the hymn, I Want Jesus to Walk With Me. An African-American spiritual, meaning a hymn written by slaves to be sung in the fields of the South. The subtext under the chorus is, I want Jesus to walk the acres of this plantation with me. I want Jesus to bear this, this strength and indignity and suffering with me again today. I want Jesus to give me hope for my children. I want Jesus to help me get out of bed again tomorrow. I want Jesus to walk here and now in the suffering with me. That's a different history than the one I bring to God. That's a history I've been woven into by the Holy Spirit who makes many people's one family. And it's a history that teaches me that the path behind this rabbi involves resilience and stamina, and it's worth every step. Sixth, self-centeredness. In the book of Acts, there's this free back and forth between signs and wonders uh, from the apostles and radical love for neighbor. Let me just show you. This is Acts 2. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The very next line, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Acts 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And in the very next breath, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Same chapter. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and in the very next breath, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So you see, the book of Acts is written like a braided cord. It's back and forth. Sacrificial love, supernatural power. Sacrificial love, supernatural power. Sacrificial love, supernatural power. Do you see how it works? The power of the Holy Spirit looks like prophetic words, miraculous healing, and uncommon, detached, culturally ludicrous sorts of philanthropy and generosity. It looks like sharing, like sharing everything you've got for the sake of the other. And in fact, the litmus test between Holy Spirit anointing and just human fanaticism is power incarnated in sacrificial love for neighbor. So if we want the power of Jesus, we must equally know the sacrificial love of Jesus. Seven, comfortable apathy. Soldiers uh, living in barracks during peacetime behave very different than soldiers at war. If you're just living in the barracks, killing time, you got plenty of time to complain about the stiffness of your mattress and how much you miss the food back home. But if you're in combat, 
you don't have the luxury of, of considering the plushness of your mattress. You're in the middle of a war. And I think one of the great tricks the spirit, our spiritual enemy pulls on us is that he convinces us that all we're doing is living in the barracks during peacetime when the truth is that we're fighting for limited real estate in a contested world. Who has the most to gain by you settling for less? The father of lies does. The enemy does. So maybe we've bought the illusion that we're just killing time in the barracks when the truth is we are in a conflict between kingdoms. A.W. Tozer says, Satan has opposed the doctrine of the spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any doctrine there is. He has confused it, opposed it, and surrounded it with false notions and fears. The church has tragically neglected this great liberating truth that there is now, for the child of God, a full and wonderful and completely satisfying anointing of the Holy Spirit. The spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe version of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. And then eighth and final symptom, dysfunctional love. In John 15, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. We hear that and think, Jesus is talking about moral commands. He's telling me, if I really love him, I'll keep the rules. But anyone who's ever been in love knows that love is always about trust, and it's never about coercion. So what does love for Jesus look like? It looks like trust. Jesus is talking about the risk of taking him seriously. In context, he's spending his final hours with his closest friends, calling them to risk everything they've got on trust of what he's sending them out to do. He will empower by his spirit. See, some people are after signs and wonders as an end in themselves, usually resulting in spiritual abuse, and that is not love for Jesus. And some people pretend that all Jesus wanted was to give the early church a filling from the Spirit, and that was a boost so that one day we could do boring discipleship curriculum in coffee shops. And that's not love for Jesus. Some people believe in a gospel of grace and a ministry of power, and they regularly risk their reputation and comfort to act on that belief. What is that? It's love for Jesus. I love you enough to trust you with my name, my reputation, my mission, and my power. Now remain in my love, he says. How do we do that? By risking our own name, laying down our own kingdom, and refusing to rely on our own power. So what gets in the way? What resists the experience of the Spirit's anointing? Do you see yourself in there anywhere? So how do we posture ourselves to say yes to the full invitation, all that Jesus' victory won for us, and all that it means to be anointed by the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit did not first clothe Jesus with power, but first sent him uh, on a fast. Mark chapter 1 says, at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit sent Jesus on a 40-day fast, and those 40 days were symbolic of the biblical history Jesus was rewriting with his life. Later, Paul writes, since we have crucified the flesh, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We all want the kingdom. Jesus shows us the way to the kingdom, and it begins with self-denial. Self-emptying readies us for God-filling. Resisting certain appetites so that we can cultivate others. Restraining cheaper satisfaction so that we begin to groan inwardly for the Spirit's power. Are you hungry? Then get ready for a feast. Don't spoil your appetite on fast food on the way to a five-star dinner. I don't even know if they give stars to dinners, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Fasting is the way that we pray with our bodies. It's the way we say, I don't want bread, I want the living bread. 
So drive me into the wilderness that I might come back into the city clothed in power. That's what we're saying to God with our bodies when we fast. Our motivation is not power. We don't fast to get power. We fast to become the sort of open channel through which God can freely pour his presence and power into the world. And sometimes that looks like miracles. And other times it looks like suffering. Fasting is not about demanding the form that God takes in expressing his heart to the world through us. It's about becoming becoming an empty channel through which God can express his personality to the world. And there's not one way to fast. There's so many, and all of them are good. This is not about endurance. It's about appetite. It's about cultivating an appetite for the bread that truly satisfies. So the practice of fasting for the sake of feasting is up right now at practicingtheway.org slash demonstrating. We'll get started this week in communities, but there's plenty of suggestions there to spark your imagination. And if you did begin a fast today, day 40 is Thanksgiving. Which is coincidental, but does happen to be a great day to break a fast. So I want to close with this. I want to close with a story that 99% of you know like the back of your hand. Charles Dickens called it the greatest story ever told. We typically name it the prodigal son. You know it, right? It goes like this. A son makes off with the inheritance while his dad's still alive. He throws it all away on a gap year that's too wild to remember. And so he ends up so hungry that he shares a plate with the livestock at the farm that he finally bottomed out in. Then he makes his way home, rehearsing an apology. But the father runs out to meet him, forgives him before he can even get a word out. He even throws a party to celebrate, and everyone joins in. Everyone except his older brother, who's trying to earn a love that he's already got. And that's what God is like. He is that good and that forgiving. And that's what life with God is like. It is an unearned celebration that never ends. But I left a part of the story out. Did anyone notice that? I left a part out. The gifts. A ring, a robe, and a pair of sandals for his feet. That's what the father gives his wayward son. Gifts symbolizing the authority that he carries, not just as a son, but as an heir to the whole estate. And that is so many of us, lost sons and daughters who have returned home to find that the Father is running out to meet us, beautiful. But then we've tucked the gifts away in a closet. No ring, no robe, no sandals. We are forgiven sons and daughters, but we're not heirs. We don't live as heirs with authority over the kingdom that we've been given. And maybe a threat to the church, but I would say certainly a threat to this church that I'm just getting to know, is that we would live on the land of our Father, enjoy unmerited forgiveness, but never open the closets to, or the closet to clothe ourselves in the gifts that he's given us. The threat is that we would be people of forgiveness without authority. If we have what the first Christians had, why do we not do what they did? We must conclude that either God gave them more than he has given us, or we have failed to avail ourselves of what he has given us. Listen to me, friends. There's more. You're home. You're forgiven. You're clean. You're renewed. You're free. It really is that good. And there's more. There's power, there's authority, there's miracles, there's grace not only to you but through you. There's faith and healing and salvation and justice and hope and a kingdom that pops through when you least expect it, where you least expect it. There's more. Do you want it? Then throw open the closet. 
There are gifts from your father there for you. They're just your size. They've been handpicked for you. A ring, a robe, and sandals for your feet.